Okay. So SNID is hosted by Queen's University, which sits on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabek Nation. This territory is included in the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Iroquois Confederacy and the Confederacy of the Ojibwe and Allied Nations. As the Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports, prohibiting Indigenous peoples from speaking their language was a key element of residential schooling and a central way that settler colonialism has violently manifested here on Turtle Island. Decolonization and Indigenous resurgence thus involved, in part, Indigenous language learning and revitalization. In Cataraqui, Kingston, there's a really wonderful project focusing on Indigenous language revitalization uh, called the, Indi the Kingston Indigenous Languages Nest. And they, I'm quoting from their website, they invite you to engage in language revitalization with Dibajimowin, Urban Indigenous Languages Revitalization Project. The centerpiece of their website is, quote, a collection of 30 digital stories about culture and language made by community members. Uh, and I encourage you to check out this website and their stories. They're, they're really beautiful. Uh, and you can find the website. It's at kingstonindigenouslanguages.ca. So our speaker today studies and thinks about the politics of language from a very different place, specifically from and of Latin America. Dr. Maria Constanza Guzman is an associate professor at York University in Toronto. She's located in the School of Translation and the Department of Hispanic Studies. Her research is in the fields of translation theories, 20th century Latin American literature, and translation in the Americas, especially between English and Spanish. Her most recent books include an edited collection called Negotiating Linguistic Plurality, Translation and Multilingualism in Canada and Beyond, and a monograph entitled Mapping Spaces of Translation in 20th Century Latin American Print Culture. So welcome, Dr. Guzman. Well, I'm really thrilled to be here with you. Uh, it's, it's, it's an honor and a pleasure to be uh, in this lecture series of the Studies in National and International Development Center at Queen's University. Uh, thank you for inviting me. And thank you, special thanks to Caroline, to Isa, and also to Dairon for this invitation and for making this gathering possible. Um, well, I, you've kindly invited me to, to talk about my recently published book, Mapping Spaces of Translation in 20th Century Latin American Print Culture. And um, I will discuss aspects of the genesis and scope of the project and also share with you some of the conclusions and insights I derived from doing this study. But I should preface the discussion and the project itself by saying that as a Colombian and a Latin American whose formation has taken place and been shaped by my lived experience in the North and the South of this hemisphere, I am acutely aware of the way knowledge circulates. As a reader, a translator, and a Latin Americanist, I look at what books are in which bookshelves, what gets printed, published, uh, cited, and commented on, etc. I am interested in what gets to travel, which books, which authors, what voices, what gets to live on and becomes perpetuated, as it were, in our own creative and scholarly practices. I tie this to translation partly as a measure for whether or not we are aware of it as a, as a measure for whether or not we are aware of it as readers um, and as, as, re, as 
as readers, bookshelves, including our own personal ones, tell the stories of the languages, the narrative practices, and the parts of the world that our libraries had ma have made the space for. Our narrative imagination emerges to a large extent from those compositions, from those bookshelves. This is one of the reasons I ended up focusing on print culture in the first place, as part of my interest in the circulation of narratives and its materiality in the larger landscape of cultural and intellectual history. Now to the project. The second half of the 20th century saw a heightened circulation of books and cultural magazines throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. Throughout the 20th century, the publishing industry grew and diversified. Latin American and Caribbean authors became more known internationally and periodicals became a major way for intellectuals throughout the continent to join forces and maintain dynamic, urgent, and at times embattled conversations. The heated geopolitical landscape of the 60s and 70s brought about changes in print culture in the intellectual field. By the late 20th century, Latin American print culture had gained transnational force. Discussing the significance and peculiarities of this period, the Argentinian scholar Claudia Hillman underscores that although it should not be naturalized or led to overarching generalizations, it is worth looking at its specificity as it was a time with a specific historical depth linked to events and shifts from the preceding decades and to those that followed. Certain aspects that characterize the period are distinct and key to understand the Latin American cultural field. Politically, several events of significance to and for Latin America took place during those years, such as the Cuban revolution, several political shifts throughout the region, also the emergence of authoritarian regimes and military dictatorships in the Southern Cone. In the world stage, we had the Cold War, the Vietnam War, uh, various emancipation and decolonization processes uh, were unfolding, as well as student and civil rights movements in the United States and in the world. This context heightened ongoing discussions around notions of Latin American specificity and identity. In this context, the discussion about regional alliances took precedence over national discourses. Another distinctive feature of the period was the internationalization and a shifting role of intellectuals, or rather a very central place for public intellectuals. Moreover, there was an energy of the social movements of the time, as Cornejo Polar puts it, imagination and plazas seem to be ours. And as and was as was our voice and the capacity to invent, invent so, love and solidarity anew. That was the promise and the project. The Latin Americanization, Americanization of culture was accompanied by increased circulation of narratives across national borders, linked to an intense period of wider internationalization of literature that came to be known as the Latin American boom which unfolded uh, um, of, and, and the publication be in circulation beyond national boundaries that reached its apogee with the publication of major Latin American uh, novels such as Cien Años de Soledad and their translation. 
In general, print materials began to circulate more widely, and this was especially the case with regard to periodicals, specifically cultural magazines. And there were other renewed forms of narrative making in other realms, such as literary fiction, music, film, graffiti. So translation has been part of, the Latin, of Latin American intellectual production and of the reshaping and shaping of national and regional discourses, historically. In the 20th century, translation was also at the core of print culture to the extent that it served as a key condition in the formation of Latin American thinking. During the second half of the century, it played a role in the shifts and processes taking place in the cultural field. In the book, I focus on practices of translation in the second half of the 20th century. I was interested in looking for connections between these two, translation and print culture, and I found few studies that had looked at, translate, at these uh, uh, from a wider comparative and transnational scope. And that is the study I set out to do in 2012. I grounded my argument on the concept of print culture for three main reasons. And, and I make this clarification for those uh, who, who are more familiar with the translation field uh, where we don't specify this. We just kind of talk about translation and we often assume that we're talking about books, right? And so uh, first naming print culture recognizes that translation is not exclusively an experience of books and printed matter, but part of everyday life and interactions. Print culture thus frames my focus on printed material and also in its sociability, its spaces. Second, as a concept, it allows me to bring books and periodicals together and see them as intertwined and interacting among themselves and also with forms of public life. Rather than focusing on their form, I wish to privilege their shared quality as technologies for the circulation of narratives. Although before in my, in my earlier work, I had focused on literature, especially uh, on the translation of those novels of the Latin American boom I referred to earlier. In this project, I sought to place literature within a larger spectrum of written narratives, especially looking at the organic dynamics among various genres that has characterized Latin American intellectual production, or what has been called pensamiento latinoamericano. Since writing and its modes of production and circulation played a key role in redesigning the political body of Latin American communities and generating imagined ones in the 20th century, I sought to look at the role of translation as part of print culture and its materiality, that is its modes of spaces and its modes and spaces of creation, production and circulation. I looked then at publishing houses and periodicals, focus, focusing on what they had translated and also what that tells us about larger editorial and intellectual visions. I did not offer close readings of the translations or said whether something was poorly translated or well translated, it wasn't that kind of approach. I, I, I didn't discuss specific translation strategies either, except for pointing some to some framing devices. Um, uh, co covering that wide scope of looking at several cases, I aim to catch a glimpse of gestures of translation in print culture within that larger regional and transnational scale. I place an emphasis on translation practice, and this is important. This is relevant for the for the choices that I made in this study because translation was present 
in almost every editorial project of, of the period. So how to choose what to look at. And uh, so I, I, I chose, I placed, I decided to place an emphasis on translation practices occurring as part of emancipatory projects, seeking cultural affirmation and self-determination. In so doing, I was interested in, 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 the, in relation, in the relationship between translation and the colonial matrix of power. It is my contention that looking at language dynamics and the translation practices of an intellectual project, in this case, uh, publishing houses and periodicals, uh, reveals whether such project reproduces Eurocentric tendencies or aims to create intellectual cartographies from and for Latin America. The, the, the opening chapter, I started looking at, at some of the concepts that would help me uh, frame this lar very large body of, of materials that I will tell you about and show you a bit in, in, in a few minutes. Uh, in the first part, I outlined the project's conceptual and methodological framings. And central to that chapter was an elaboration of the relevance of print culture and the materiality for understanding cultural history today and an articulation of the space of translation as an operational notion and its relation to the Americas as a geopolitical site. I found, and I, I was in looking at that kind of recent history, I found it very useful to work on the notion of archive, to, uh, to think of a genealogy of translation in Latin America. I found resonance, so in the book, there is of course a more extensive and uh, explanation of the whole conceptual uh, framing and, and more reference. Uh, but I will refer, I'll mention just two now. I found resonance with Ignacio Infante's book after translation where he links translation to the notion of cultures of circulation and approaches it as an instrumental constitutive process able to generate various forms of transfers that articulate the circulation of modern transatlantic forms. This helps situate spaces of translation as nodes where those cultures of circulation are manifest and where they negotiate language flow simultaneously within and beyond print matter. To the extent that this project responded to a historiographic desire, uh, this, this is uh, linked to the archive. I've been interested in linking translation to the Latin American archive, also engaging with the work of authors such as Brent Hayes Edwards, uh, who in the practice of diaspora talks about the archive itself as a dynamic space for ongoing interpretation and engagement. Edwards brings together the notions of translation and of archive to understand the role of transatlantic exchanges, in particular for him in mobilizing black internationalism and proposes a cultural history that doesn't presuppose the existence of an existing archive to go and examine, but, um, a dynamic new and emergent archive. Previously unavailable as such, and that emerges precisely by critically tracing the material residues of that transla translational circulation. That history or that type of history does not follow or reinforce a previously given national linguistic or methodological framework, but requires, and I quote Edwards, 
unearthing and articulating an archive that is not, I quote, a site or model of preservation of a national institutional or individual past, but instead a generative system, a discursive system that governs the possibilities, forms, appearance, and regularity of particular statements, objects, and practices. The archive is thus a generative, dynamic, multi-directional and relational space that is not aimed at a, as a, at a fixed collection, but offers a form of engagement. These uh, conceptualizations are helpful when we aim for a genealogy because translation is situated in the realm of cultural practices through which to trace the past, but it is also about writing the past, about writing about it and activating it in the present. It is a form of memory in itself, and it's also an instance of memory making. So that's kind of the approach to the historical exercise. And the other um, conceptual axis for this work was thinking of intellectual production as structurally situated within the colonial matrix of power. Historically, intellectual projects, as I was saying earlier, in Latin America and the Caribbean have frequently been founded on and nourished by translated narratives. In the Americas and the Caribbean and Latin America, print culture has historically been inflected by colonial relations. Print was a technology of colonization and, the colonial, and so was translation. And the colonial legacy inscribes modern print culture in its various forms. In many Latin American periodicals, having served as devices for the importation of foreign ideas, there was often a significant volume of translated content. And in the continuum of colonial dynamics and as part of the materialization of colonial legacies in intellectual relations, translated texts have traditionally displaced vernacular voices in the privileged space of print. It is then um, that, that kind of framing also that informed what questions I decided to ask of these materials that I'll tell you about in, in, in shortly. As sites of intellectual conversations, editorial projects for, provide a unique vantage point for that type of study for the angle, that angle. A central, because a central and productive tension emerges when thinking of the interplay between translation in Latin America and particular particularly for Latin Americanist projects. For given that translation has historically served as a colonial tool, how and to what extent has it driven intellectual production in, of, and for Latin America and the Caribbean? What are the vectors of exchange that realize themselves in print culture? What is the directionality of the translated exchanges? How does translation perpetuate colonial intellectual and epistemic legacies? How does it subvert, subvert, resist, and decolonize spaces inscribed by these legacies? Can it do it at all? What are the images of Latin America and the Caribbean that emerge from these forms of praxis? These questions became central to look at the extent to which translation as a part of a narrative composition of, of these, these uh, instances that I study has been on the one hand a reflective practice aware of the asymmetries of the circuits circuits of knowledge production, and on the other, a vector and a force for reconfigured intellectual cartographies that challenge dominant practices and hegemonic orders. 
the cases I studied are extremely varied and the answers in each case to these questions are very different or were very different. Rather than comparing for comparison's sake, I am to offer to create a plural composition to somehow uh, to see how translation as a negotiation of language multiplicity can help trace in the Americas the possibilities for reconfigured intellectual cartographies. Are you able to see my screen now? Okay. All right. So the chapter, I, I started the, the presentation of, of my, my kind of reflections in the book with two publishing houses that I looked at. So the chapter, uh, publishing houses, publishing in Latin America, translation in Fondo de Cultura Económica and Biblioteca Yacucho offers a discussion of the importance of spaces of editorial activity, specifically publishing houses, and of translation in them for 20th century Latin American intellectual production. It focused on the role of translation in, the, in these two influential publishing initiatives um, that were key in the circulation, particularly of humanities and social science works in the 20th century. I discussed their look in the chapter, I discussed their location, their vision, and the intellectual networks with which they were associated. So in the chapter, what I won't be able to do in this presentation is tell you all the details about each one of these cases. That's, I elaborate on that in the book, but just so you know, I, I, I looked at the entire catalogs of these publishing houses and extracted all the translated material. I looked at a number of um, applying a methodology that I designed, um, at the, a, a kind of an idea of, of a density of translation, what kind of density of translation there were, what languages, what forms, what authors, from where, and so on. And so Fondo de Cultura Económica and Biblioteca Yacucho have been among the most important Biblioteca Yacuchos. Is this a Biblioteca uh, Yacucho now has a different um, phase, a different moment. Uh, currently, both of them are remain active. And I looked particularly at their production in the period of the 60s and 70s. Uh, so both of these have been among the most important editorial initiatives of Latin American print culture that operated self-consciously on the construction of a Latin American collective culture and imaginary. Their narrative and translation praxis, although distinct, distinct, was identifiably geared toward that goal. This is particularly significant um, when they became, as they became part, part and parcel of a larger continental intellectual and political movement. There's no denying that the directors, editors, and the collective forces driving both of these initiatives had both an engagement with local and national cultural energies and dynamics and pan-Latin American visions and aspirations. So their translation practice was very aligned with that construction of a kind of a pan-Latin American vision. Editors engage in various and creative ways in mobilizing their projects about and across the Latin American field, as can be seen particularly well in decades of editorial engagement in, in, in the, the ones that I discussed in Fondo de Cultura Económica. They had a concrete material dimension in the sense of expanding the 
book, the circulation of books and the readership uh, throughout Latin America and construct a, 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 a cultural institution that is seen itself as such. In regard to translation, the approach and praxis of each one of these two was different. What can be seen in common is a modern and situated praxis that did not follow the vectors of exchange of the previous century. Translation in both of these was activated for intra-Latin American relations, thus reshaping conventional Eurocentric cultural vectors that had been the most common practice before uh, their existence. Um, although the 20th century was the time, uh, the time of the emergence and consolidation of print industry forum from Latin America, the tensions between print reproduction and the hegemonic colonially infused relations and conditions remain. And there is some discussion in the book about how we see these trends um, reproducing themselves after the 90s in terms of materiality uh, of publishing and circulation of publishing. And that's relevant because a Fondo de Cultura Económica turns out to be one of the few uh, players in the book market that has been able to, to survive in a way the, the, the uh, cultural policies of the 90s that were quite uh, difficult for independent publishers. After looking at these, these, those two instances of publishers, I looked at periodicals and I looked at, I actually did a whole survey of all the translated materials of over 20 Latin American uh, periodicals from Latin America and the Caribbean. And um, in the first chapter that I discussed, I looked at, in, from a comparative perspective, at the practices of the Uruguayan Cuadernos de Marcha, the Colombian Mito. Here's Mito, Cuadernos de Marcha. Um, the Argentine Crisis the Mexican plural, and the Mexico US, el corno emplumado, or the plumed horn. Here's, some of these had, had also publishing houses. So in this case, el corno emplumado had also an editorial um, venue for, for book length projects. Seeing translation, so I compared and kind of contrasted all of their, their records of translations. Seeing translation as one of the narrative practices constituting the composition of each of these periodicals, we see, uh, so I described them, I also discuss a little bit the periodicals as a form and its study. And uh, I take uh, some, some inspiration and uh, some of the, I base that discussion on the work of my colleague Shanaz Tahir who works on translation and periodicals in the history of Turkey. Seeing translation as one of the narrative practices constituting the composition of each of these periodicals, we see both the specificity of each and the commonalities they have among themselves. In most of the cases, I found affinities between translation and the ideological underpinnings of the larger intellectual project. There were also several contradictions. At the same time, several, the, these contradictions are present in, in many of them, some of which emerge precisely when we look at them from my my, my uh, time of enunciation from this temporal distance that I have uh, from the time of production of these, of these pieces. 
In any case, the enormous energy and commitment to culture-based action behind each of these projects makes it clear that reading them, focusing only on their contradictions, for me, myself as a critic, would not do justice to their place in intellectual history. This host uh, for translation practice as well, which is sometimes emerging, contingent, accidental, full of contradictions, uh, but it is part of that kind of soci sociability of uh, in, in a particular cultural scene and a collective project. Each magazine's functioning will have to be read, attending to its own paths and meanderings, all of which are part of print culture. This perspective allows looking at translation without focusing either on textual close reading nor to chronological and biographical histories centered on names and figures, but rather on modes and this, again, this notion of cultures of circulation. The following two chapters centered around the Caribbean. And the first one, in the first one, I talk about Cuba as a dynamic side of translation activity and look at the magazines Origenes, Ciclón, and Casa de las Americas, particularly with the axis, uh, from the axis of the triumph of the revolution in 59. So I, I am, among other aspects, the chapter discusses the relationship between Casa and, and its two pre-59 pre precursors to illustrate continuities and discontinuities of translation and narrative practice. In the, the second chapter that focuses on the Caribbean, it's entitled, the multilingual Caribbean and its borders, print as trace and as testimony. And it's premised on framing the Caribbean in its linguistic and plural cultural plurality as a quintessential space of translation of the Americas. It discusses the influential role of magazines in forming the basis for Caribbean literature as we know it today. Pointing to two specific examples, including aspects of editorial practice is practice of the Martinican magazine Tropic, the Barbadian magazine BIM, and, the, and again, Casa de las Americas, specifically its Caribbean-focused uh, activities. Uh, the chapter discusses uh, the practice of translation or lack thereof in them. It aims to, aims to address the complex plurilingual landscape of the Caribbean and discuss print culture as a site where history, identity, and regional articulation are negotiated, and where print and intellectual practices at times perpetuate, while other times disrupt official narratives and colonial relations. In both chapters, I foreground um, the centrality of Casa de las Americas, both the institution and its publications Um, especially its magazine in the, context of, in the context of Latin America and the Caribbean. Tropic, Beam, and Casa de las Americas were and continue to be influential throughout the Caribbean region. The three were committed to a sense of intellectual autonomy and self-determination while aspiring not to restrict themselves to the national, but to contribute to a larger cultural field. The three set out to have a transnational vision uh, and the three phase tensions emerging from their contextual specificities, configurations, and aspirations. While translation was part of the transnational conversation intrinsic to Caribbean intellectual life, it was by no means the only way in which a transnational conversation was made possible. However, translation was 
the only way such a conversation could be truly pan-Caribbean because of the linguistic plurality of the region. In my study, I found Casa de las Americas as an institution and a magazine to be a space of translation par excellence in Latin America and the Caribbean. And the book ended up being, I ended up dedicating the entire book to Casa de las Americas. Through the years, in the pages of Revista Casa and in the initiatives of the institution at large, the image of the Americas and of Latin America in particular that emerges is an image of a heterogeneous multilingual territory and a plural intellectual imagination. Mapping the cultural vectors that can be traced via translation in Casa with translations from over 20 languages and translations and awards uh, for Caribbean authors, um, I, mapping those cultural vectors, we can see a constellation that brings to the forefront the languages of the Americas and gives space to plural vernacular voices. In its over 60 years of existence, Casa de las Americas has been able to question existing territorialities, the body of Latin America, so to speak. It engaged more directly and persistently with subjugated genres, knowledges and voices, and this was performed textually and editorially. The Caribbean, for example, it's, it's, it's a region, Revista Casa reinforces a map of Latin America where Brazil and the Caribbean figure prominently and which links the Americas and the global south. The Caribbean that emerges in Casa de las Americas is a plurilingual and multi-voiced one. In creating the space for this multiplicity to emerge, it is a space that offers dynamic cartographies and defies colonial mappings. Challenging traditional directionalities of colonial intellectual legacies, in Casa we can see a narrative constellation that brings to the fore the languages of the Americas and give space to plural vernacular voices while rendering the Caribbean an exemplary instance for the entire Americas of plurilingual relation. And here I, uh, I signal Glissant's understanding of relation. Then the last uh, chapter has to do with ideas for what would it look like to decolonize translation. And I, I, I give some examples of, of Portuñol as one instance of, one of many instances of border languages who, that throughout the Americas have not had an easy place, easy or easy place in the, in print culture, particularly because they are at odds with national national bound identities and uh, of culture and, and and language. So I look at that uh, that um, that question of Portuñol, and then I wonder, you know, what would it look like to uh, imagine a decolonial translation stance. Such stance compels us to awaken colonial memory, which Western forms of knowing have systematically repressed. It requires a redefined situatedness that problematizes the privileging of one epistemological axis that endows Eurocentric thinking with the exclusive authority to establish relations of value. The colonizing translation thinking presupposes an epistemic shift given the necessary questioning of the preeminence of Western rationality. 
it presupposes placing translation over the colonial matrix of power and observing its workings while at the same time aiming to avoid the impulse of totalizing and dichotomizing epistemic claims, and this is an argument that Joshua Price makes in his work, that have long served to repress and oppress colonized forms of knowing. A decolonial understanding of translation history also calls for a de-instrumentalized understanding of translation itself. That is, it requires seeking the contours of a view of translation and translatability that are not premised on mere neutral communication and, uh, and instead looks at translation as engagement and as relation. This involves also a recognition and better understanding of translation related practices such as interpretation, self-translation, non-translation, the resistance to translate as analogous in as much as they signal the desire um, to, 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 to uh, mobilize language as, as relation. Decolonizing translation entails looking not only at the trajectories and vectors of cultural transaction, but also at their directionality. Translation through the Americas does not and has not operated in horizontal and reciprocal form, terms. So it's very hard to believe that the idea of the harmonious bridging of communities is, would be a definition that would work, that would um, fit the, the, the context of the Americas. Unidirectional engagement is a symptom of what Josh Price calls the hidden asymmetries of translation. It also, this decolonizing approach also compels us to understand the deeply rooted political and historical implications of linguistic plurality in the Americas. Rather than a homogenizing force, decolonial translation shall go beyond hegemonic languages, valorize language heterogeneity, and handle with care the rich, diverse, and complex epistemic spectrum of our peoples and territories. So then I, I conclude the, the, the book with talking about what position the translation occupy Latin American print culture and with a riff in the 20th century. And the answer is to this question cannot be summed up. Summed up. It's very, very, um, very um, complex, uh, but it, there, there are a number of ways in which we see translation deployed in these different editorial projects. And I look at how these ways, some are what Sanchez Prado calls uh, strategic occidentalism, Others are more like uh, more clearly decolonial in the kind of vein that I was describing. So, uh, overall, the book sought to find the document and document stories about periodicals and publishing houses, undertaking a situated, regionally framed comparative examination of translation and multilingual narrative practices. So, uh, as I so what are, what are, how are these seen, can these be seen as devices through which regional imaginaries are constructed and produced via narrative and linguistic plurality? In addition to exposing the continuity of colonially inflected practices in intellectual praxis, bringing into conversation translation and print culture in the context of modern Latin American intellectual histories may illuminate ways to mobilize translation within and beyond academia. And so I'll end with this, with this, uh, a couple of thoughts. One is that in fact, for me, to me, 
a central question at the end of this study was and continues to be how these investigations of recent cultural history can inform the present. How can looking at this archive tell us how we do intellectual work? Uh, looking at 20th century Latin American print culture serves as a historical window for our century. As Beatriz Sarlo remarks, a periodical should be interpreted remembering that it was inserted in, its, in the problems of its present. In the 60s and 70s, she says, the deseo de revista or the drive to have a magazine signaled a desire for cultural intervention seeking to be a form of action in the public sphere. Beyond being simply a means of explaining the present, the historical archive can offer us illuminating images of how to engage it. Looking at recent cultural history is central to understand the narrative patterns of circulation that we follow today. While discursively much is stated as to the colonial and emancipatory practices in academia, the dynamics of print culture with the lack of translation, the focus on the English language and the monopolization of publishing are far from providing spaces for a true, truly emancipatory praxis. Instances of print culture ingrained in past movements for social action and political change show us forms of strategic, critical and contrapuntal uses of translation as emancipatory praxis, enabling plural and shifting intellectual cartographies. The space of an editorial project itself can produce and perform small and large interpretive revolutions. Although the so-called late age of print is often described as, I quote, more dynamic and open-ended moment with this, uh, the digital turn and open access and so on, and critical views of digital print culture are also problematic as despite the apparently seamless transnational mobility of narratives online, the dynamics of colonial legacies continue to reproduce themselves. In the digital, we see continued forms of cultural colonization and gatekeeping. In response to today's corporate landscape, given increasingly widening gaps of economic access, there are proposals to challenge commercial monopolization and for graded bibliodiversity. Bibliodiversity is a term coined in Chile by small presses organizing to counter the large publishing monopolies. This emerged from an awareness of market-driven forces in print production that also privilege uh, hegemonic languages and discourses. Today, as much as ever, translation may still be a homogenizing force, reproducing colonial practices in per perpetuating hegemonic discourses. So I would like to continue to think of how looking at recent uh, history can teach us and we can derive lessons on, for how to mobilize uh, for an increased world's bibliodiversity. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Guzman. I'm going to stop the recording now.